You're listening to the 21st Century Guide to the New Testament series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, this evening we're going to be in the book of 2 John. And last week we were in 1 John. And the title of 1 John, the subtitle I gave it was The Book of Bonafide Believers. It was to help us understand what it meant to be a true believer. And if you remember last week, we said from First John, we get three different marks. Now, we could probably extend this further, but at least three different marks of what it looks like to be a real believer, a true, authentic believer in Christ. And that was one who knows the truth. They know true doctrine. There are things that they believe that are non-negotiable. Okay? They know about Christ. They know about what he did. They know about his sacrifice. They know he was the son of God. They know he came in the flesh. Um, these things are truths that, that true believers know. We also said that a true believer is one who pursues righteousness, which is just obedience to God's command. They desire holiness in their life, and then, so they pursue that righteousness. They're trying to live out their faith, live out what they say they believe. And finally, we saw that a true believer is one who practices love. Okay, all, all of that truth is, it, it doesn't have a heart, it doesn't have feet if it doesn't have love. And so a true believer is seen by the love they show from one to another. We also saw last week that the motivation for all of this, the motivation for the, the truth and desiring to know truth and to know about Christ, the motivation for pursuing righteousness, the motivation for the love that we show others is all found in the love that God has for you that is seen on the cross. And so we do what we do because we know that God loves us, because we know what he did for us on the cross. And I say all that again tonight because a lot of people would call 2 John an addendum to 1 John. Okay, now an addendum is an item of additional material or an example that is placed at the end of a document. And so if I'm writing a paper, I have a thesis and I'm trying to prove my thesis and I might have a a wonderful example that, that I can refer to in my essay and then I place that at the very end of the essay as, as the example or, and you can have a number of different addendums, but what, what we have in second John is we have a specific example, a specific letter that is sent to either an individual or a church. We'll talk about that in a second, but it's a very specific example and it shows how some of the truths that are given in first John relate to real life. So we have this wonderful example for us. In second John, we find the same three themes that we find in first John. Even in this short little memo, I mean, it's 13 verses, the, the least number of verses of any books in the New Testament. And yet here we have these three themes, truth, obedience, and love, so clear, clearly presented. And so let's pray and then let, we'll get into our book tonight. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, Lord. I'm excited about tonight, the opportunity to study a book that is short, that we can really get into, God, that we can look at each verse and, and see what it means for our lives. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to, um, to purposely apply this book to our lives, Lord, to see how relevant it is for us, Lord, to see how important truth is in our lives, to see how that truth ought to work itself out in obedience and love. And Lord, help us to... Um, change because of what we learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of the book, again, is the Apostle John. He introduced himself in 2 John, the first verse, as the elder unto the elect lady and her children. And it's interesting here, again, he doesn't use his proper name, but he introduced himself as the elder. Now, 
I said last week, again this week, that we know it was John for a couple reasons. One of them is his writing style. It's very clearly, it's indirect evidence, but it's very clearly the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation, is now writing the first letter of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. You can see it from the writing style. We also know from historical evidence, um, there's a man named Polycarp who was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he, he was directly under him. He learned directly from him. And then below that guy was a guy named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus did a lot of writing. And one of the things that he very clearly said um, in the second century was that it was the Apostle John who wrote this book. So we, we know it was when he says it's the elder that he's speaking about the Apostle John. The question is, why didn't he say the Apostle? Because at this time, he's writing. He's writing probably in 80, 85 to 90. And he's probably the only Apostle still left alive. The rest have been martyred for their faith. And I don't know for sure the answer, but I, I wonder if he's calling himself the elder because of what the word elder represents. Now, one thing we know elder represents is somebody who is old, elderly, who's, who's coming on in years. But in the Bible, when we look at the position of an elder, we find somebody whose job is to encourage the flock, to warn the flock, to direct the flock, to guide the flock. It's the position of a pastor, a shepherd. And when we look at this letter, that's exactly what he's doing. And so I believe that probably the elder was just a, a nickname that John was given by the churches in the area because that's, how, that's who they knew him as. He was the guy who was always encouraging and, and, and warning and, and performing the office of an elder for many people here. Probably in Ephesus, but I believe he's probably writing to another church in Asia. The date is AD 85 to 90, and the audience is the elect lady and her children— and many people have speculated upon what this means. Is the elect lady and her children a real woman and her real children? Or is he using that term symbolically? Is he speaking about a church and the children being the members of the church? I mean, there's no clear answer for this. I would say that I, I lean toward that he's writing about a church. Okay, and I'll tell you why I believe that. It's because... It would seem strange to me for John to write this kind of letter to a, a, an individual female person. When you look at the themes that he covers and, and the topics that come up, it seems like he's writing, it, the letter would make a lot of sense if it was written to a church. It would make less sense if it was written to one individual lady. It, it would, I think it would be a little bit strange him just writing a letter to one lady if there wasn't some type of romantic relationship involved in the first place. And, and, it wouldn't be a, a normal thing in that day for a man to write a letter to one lady because it took, it was, there was a lot of trouble that went into doing this. So that's, that's one of the reasons. Also, it would make sense if it was writing to a church because in, in verse 4 he says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. Now, it could be that he's saying, I've seen your kids running around and they seem like they're walking in truth. That could be true. But it, it makes a lot of sense if it's, hey, listen, I've seen other me members of your church around. Okay, these people have traveled to Ephesus. I, I know some of them, and they're walking in truth. And so I'm excited about people in your church that are walking in truth. That would make a lot of sense to me. In verse 10, he says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive, not, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now, he could be telling an individual lady, don't let these people come into your house, but it would make a lot of sense to me if he was speaking to a church, telling a church, hey, listen, when missionaries come 
and they don't have right doctrine, they don't believe right things about Jesus, then as a church, don't let them in your house. Don't let them in your church. Don't let them into any of your individual houses because you shouldn't be helping those people along. But the, the final thing that I think, to me at least, makes me believe is probably more likely to church is verse 13 says, The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Now, at the end of a lot of Paul's letters, he speaks about the church that is in Rome greets you. Well, wouldn't it make a lot of sense if he said, hey, the church in Ephesus greets you? And a way of saying that was just, hey, the children of your sister, your, your, your elect sister. So it's still, it's probably not speaking about that lady's sister, human sister. It's, it, it sounds like a sister church kind of thing, that we greet you. Okay, all the children, all the members here greet you. So that, those are my reasons, but it doesn't really matter. Either way, um, the purpose is this, to encourage believers to walk in truth and love and to warn them of false teachers. And so what he's, he's encouraging the elect lady, whether that's a church or whether that's an individual, it's believers. She's a believer. They are believers. To walk in truth and love and to warn them of false teachers. Now, love in North America today is very, very popular. The church in North America. And as Pastor was just, and as Steve mentioned, people being persecuted. I think if you were to go to the church around the world where there's a great deal of persecution, you would find the love that they talk about has a slightly different meaning than the love that the church in North America seems to talk about. Because we, when we talk about love, oftentimes what we mean is niceness. Okay, that it's, it's about being nice, being kind. Now, that is certainly an aspect of love. But love is popular sometimes to an extreme. And, and I don't mean that you can take love to an extreme. You can't. True love should be pursued as far as it can go. But the problem is when we start to redefine love and then push that kind of love on people. Right? And so if I was to, to make a caricature of two different types of people in the church, you might say that there's that, that, that liberal who is all about love. And then you'd have the fundamentalist who's all about truth. And these two guys are arguing all the time. And the liberal is saying, listen, you're, you're so caught up in what's true in, in doctrine and those things that you forget to love people. You're not kind. You, you're not, unsafe people don't want to go near you because you're so mean to them. You're so obsessed with your truth. Well, the, the fundamentalist replies and says, well, listen, buddy, you say you love people, but that's great that you do nice things for them, but they never hear about truth. They never hear about what Jesus did and why he came and what they need to repent of, and they never know the truths that are found in Scripture. And a lot of times, that, that would be a good character, that there are people that are so obsessed with love, they think that everybody should be brought under the banner of God's love, regardless of their beliefs and regardless of their doctrine, regardless of, of how they live their lives. It's, it's just all about love. And it is true that there are many people that are so obsessed with truth and they're so uh, hardcore on their truth that they forget to love people. They just hate everybody. And when we think about this problem and when we think about this conversation that goes back and forth, we must ask the question, what is the solution? How do we get to a point in our life where we're neither one of those people? And I think probably the right guy to, to ask the question to would be John, the apostle of love. Because as we'll find... John was in love with the truth. He loved the truth and he loved love. And he pursued both. Dan, just a little, yeah. little thing I, I think helped me in this. There, there's a phrase that says, um, love, truth without love is brutality, 
and love without truth is hypocrisy. That's good. See, he just said all the things that I'm going to say in the next few minutes in a short little snippet. Nice work. This letter, as short as it is, provides wonderful encouragement, explanation, and warning to ensure that what we call love is the same thing as the love that Christ has called us to. And we'll see what it means to to have truth and love working together. So, believers must be willing to redefine their understanding of both truth and love so that it lines up with what the Bible says truth and love really are. A lot of times we are confused. We forget or we don't realize how much our upbringing, our culture, all of those things come together to form our beliefs. We just assume that we're right. We just assume that everything we've ever been taught is what is true. And so when we talk about this, we need to redefine what love is. What really does it mean to act in love? I was just thinking as they were talking about the abortion thing. There's a lot of people that would use the pro-choice argument as an act of love. Women should be able to choose because it's more loving for the woman. Because she had this wonderful life ahead of her, and now, it's, now it can potentially be destroyed. And if you really love her, you need to give her the right to choose. And you can say, even for the baby, you could say, it's more loving to not allow that baby to come into the world than it is to bring them into the world that they'll be brought into, a world where maybe they'll be poor, or where they'll be disabled, or where they'll have a lot of difficulty. It's more loving to cease the child's existence. And what we need to do is redefine love to mean what the Bible would say love means. Because if you come at it from a a secular standpoint where there's no standard of truth, you can make a good argument that that is a loving thing to do. It's only when you say, when you apply truth to love, that real love really happens. And that's why it's so essential. So let's see what, what John has to say in this letter about truth and love. Number one, love must be founded in truth for love to be authentic. Love must be founded in or upon truth for love to be authentic. Um, he, he begins in Second John, verse 1. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwells in us and shall be with us forever. He begins his letter making sure that she knows that I love you, but my love for you is based on the truth or in the truth. And I think he does that because he knows that that actually gives the love meaning. The word love can be thrown around so many different ways and and it can mean so many different things. And when he says this, he wants her to know that his love is based on the truth. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about the truth of God's word, the truth about Christ. So I love you, and, and when he says in the truth, he's saying, I, I love you as, as best to my ability, the way God loves you, like God loves you, because God loves me, and he's commanded me to love you. That's, my love isn't just this emotional thing. I'm not just throwing out like, hey, I saw you once, you're really nice to me, and so I love you. It's like, I love you because God loves me, and, because, and my love for you means that I'm willing to sacrifice on myself and to, to put my love into action. It's a real love, because it's love in the truth. For John, love meant nothing if it was not grounded in the truth. Love was real because of the truth it was founded upon. And so love must be founded in truth for it to be authentic. Number two, truth will stimulate loving obedience. If you, when you have real truth, then loving obedience must follow that. 
if you know the truth and believe the truth, then loving obedience is the, the result of those things if it's, they're really happening. In verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So here he's saying, first of all, I, lo- I love the fact that there are people that are from your church or your children who are walking in the truth. And when he goes to describe what walking in the truth means, is that they're walking in the commandment from the Father. And he tells them what the commandment that he's talking about is, that the commandment is that they're walking in love, that they're loving one another. And so what does it mean to, to have truth and to walk in truth? Well, it means to love one another. So walking in truth equals loving one another, right? And so truth will stimulate loving obedience. The truth that they were walking in was the, that they were supposed to love one another. Remember that Jesus said that there were two commands greater than all the other commands. What were they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love one another. And then it's kind of neat how in 1 John, John says if you love God, you will love one another. Okay, so, so now it's not even just two. It's like if you really have the first one, you will have the second one. They follow. You can't do one without the other. And here he says that, the, that God's command is actually to love one another. And so when we're having this discussion between the person who is all loving, the person who is just all about truth, we must understand that you can't actually separate the two things. Somebody who really has and believes truth must be all loving, and somebody who really wants to be all loving must be loving in the truth. It must be founded upon the truth. The two things are not mutually exclusive. They are actually necessarily dependent upon one another. You can't take them apart. They must be together either if not, then either truth is empty and it's not really believed or love is vain because it's not founded upon truth. Love defined here is that it is walking after his commandments. So if you want to know how to love, walk after the commandments of God. Okay, and that's important because it means that it's not just a feeling. You can feel a lot of things without acting, right? Right? But here he's making it clear that if you love, you will obey commandments. So there'll be action that necessarily follows. Love should not be viewed primarily as a feeling or an emotion, but as an obedient response to truth and command. So truth will stimulate loving obedience. Number three, true love supports truth and hinders untruth. True love supports truth. I think that's already kind of seen clearly. But also it hinders untruth. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, For many deceivers are enticed into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Remember what First John was fighting against? He's fighting against those people, maybe the early Gnostics, who was, were teaching that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. 
that he, he is a spirit and that flesh is evil. And so they tried to separate the two Jesuses. So some of, sometimes they said, you have Jesus who is a human and you have Christ who is the spirit. And they, they, he came upon him, but was never really him. And, and what they're saying is that there was really a different Jesus than the Jesus that's presented in the gospels, because that's where the word becomes flesh. And so here again, he's speaking to the same heresy. These deceivers are entered the, into the world and what are they confessing? What are they teaching? that Jesus is, is not come in the flesh. The teaching that, that Jesus was just a spirit. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Those are very strong words for a guy who's the apostle of love. He says, look to yourselves. In other words, <laughs> warn yourselves. Um, watch your doctrine. Take care of yourself. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, this verse is kind of confusing because... In the Greek, the personal pronouns aren't there. And so trying to figure out whether it's we or you is a very difficult task. And if you look at different translations, they're all, they're all different. They all try and figure this out differently. I'll tell you how I think it makes a lot of sense. Look to yourselves that you lose not those things which we have wrought, but receive a full reward. Okay, so I think what he's saying is, take care of yourselves that you don't lose the things that we taught you, that we wrought, the work that we did among you. Okay, be very careful that you don't lose that stuff so that you receive a full reward. Okay, because if you go the wrong direction, you won't receive a full reward. So I think he's he's telling them, be careful. This is important. This is going to affect your future. Verse 9, whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. So that's a, a terrifying statement. If you're somebody who is confessing that Christ has not come in the flesh. If John is right, because what he's saying is, if you're not abiding in the doctrine of Christ, you don't have God at all. If you don't have the real Christ, you, you have nothing to do with God. In fact, he says, if you don't abide in the doctrine of Christ, in the truth of Christ, if you don't believe the right things about Jesus, those that do believe the right things about Jesus, they have both the Father and the Son. Verse number 10. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. This is a very strong warning. And it would come across for many people as very unloving. If somebody comes to your house or comes to your church, if you have fellowship with somebody who doesn't believe these things about Christ, don't have him in your house. If he's hungry, don't feed him. If he's tired, don't give him a bed to sleep in. Okay? If he wants to fellowship, don't have conversation with him. Keep him away from you. Okay? Don't let him in your house. And don't wish him well. Don't tell him good luck, right? What he's saying is, don't have anything to do with those people. Don't help them in any way, shape, or form. Now, how is that loving? It's loving because true love supports truth and hinders untruth. You got to hinder those people. You got to stop them because it's never loving to allow somebody to teach or believe or propagate false doctrine especially false doctrine when it's, when it's about Christ. And so you need to be very careful. He warns them very sternly. 
Then he concludes the letter, verse 12 and 13, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that your joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. And so here is John's letter. It's a, a short letter, but it deals very clearly with this relationship between truth and love and how it works itself out in the life of the believer. And so I'll give you a brief outline of the book, the key verse, and we'll get into the application quickly. Um, the outline is greeting, verses 1 to 3, the commendation, the, the fact that there were many believers that he knew from that place, the church of the lady, that were walking in the truth. Then he gives the exhortation to keep walking in the truth and keep obeying the commands and keep walking in love. And then the exhortation, sorry, in the warning in verses 7 to 11, about staying away from false teachers, not helping them, and then the farewell in verses 12 and 13. The key verse is verse 6, and it says, And this is love, that ye walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And so how do we apply this to our lives? And we've done that already a little bit, but I want to give you three things, and I think they kind of go in order. Number one, think biblically about truth and love. Think biblically about truth and love. Truth. How do we think biblically about truth? And maybe think biblically about truth in contrast to what the world teaches us about truth. That's one thing we need to learn about truth. That there is truth. That it exists. Meaning that there is also things that are lies. That truth is not true for me and not true for you or true for you and not true for me. That That it's absolute. That there is a standard giver. And the source of truth is the word of God. And so that's what we need to know about truth, that God's word is the standard for truth and that any other beliefs or practices or philosophies must be first measured up to the word of God. We're okay with things being absolutely true when when they're being applied to somebody else. And then as soon as it, it hits home for us or as soon as our intuition is against it, okay, once we, once we find something in the Bible, we're like, mm, that doesn't make sense to me. I think this is right. As soon as you've done that, you've undermined the authority of the word of God in your life. Okay? If you're the one that gets to decide what about the Bible is true and what's not true, then you're the authority, not the Bible. Right? And so it's, it is important that we realize that when we say that there's absolute truth and we talk about the authority of the word of God, that hits home very strongly in the areas where the word of God is against what we're doing, our lives, or against what we think or what we believe. When we, when we believe in the authority of the word of God, we must conform our lives to that word. Yeah. I'm sorry. But no, I'm good. Good quote here. I didn't make this up either, mm-hmm. but it's really in line with what you're saying. This is Augustine. Here's what he said about this. He says, if you believe what you like in the gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Yeah. I feel like I heard that recently. That's really good. It's fantastic. It's Augustine who said that. Yeah. yeah. Augustine is a smart guy. Um, <laughs> so when we're trying to define what love is, we must define it by the word of God because that's our only source of absolute truth. It's never loving to let someone believe or dispense heresy. When we say that and when we see that in this book, the reason it's true is because there is absolute truth And when we define truth by the word of God, then when people are teaching heresy, when people are teaching false things or believing false things, the the most unloving thing you could do is, is allow that to happen. 
that is truth as defined by God's word. Um, when we define love by God's word, we find that it cannot be separated from truth, that it's founded upon truth. If we were to speak about uh, a, a builder analogy, I was trying to think of an analogy that really fit this, and all I could think of is, is if somebody said, I want you to build the, a, a building that's going to be the capital building for Mars, and the person went to, you know, Tilbury and started building a building, and they're like, yeah, that's great, but you're not building it on Mars, and until you build the building on Mars, it doesn't matter how beautiful the building is or, or how much work you put into it or how hard you work on it. None of those things matter because that, the capital building of Mars has to be on Mars. If we want to know what truth looks like, the first step is to make sure we have the right foundation for it. You can't have real love if it's built somewhere that it's not supposed to be built. And so the only foundation that you can build true love on is the Word of God. It is not primarily emotion. Love in our culture is always an emotion. Uh, we watched the movie Frozen recently, and great, great Disney movie. It was like kind of back to like the old school Disney movies where they do the musical things. So I th- really good, but the, the girl falls in love when you watch the movie. I'm going to ruin it for some of you, so I'm sorry about that. Don't. Okay, close your ears if you don't want to hear this. Uh, it's not really ruining it. You find out, oh man. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it is an animated movie we're talking about, so it's not, like, life-changing. Yeah, you're using it as an example, so it's good. It is good. Go You've had time to see it. If you haven't seen it yet, you don't really want to see it. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so this girl, this girl falls in love, and the love that she falls in is the perfect picture of what Hollywood love usually looks like. The guy is beautiful. He sweeps her off her feet. He finishes her sentences. Um, in fact, one of the lines is, um, you finish my, and she says, sandwiches. <laughs> and then he says, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> but the point is, you think that they're really in love, and she's convinced she's really in love. And for most of the movie, that's the case. You believe that this is real love. This is the Disney picture of love. And then at the end of the movie, you find out that it wasn't real love. When we just think of love as being this emotional connection, then we completely miss what the Word of God says about love. And you know what? This is true with faith, too, and belief, too. I think sometimes we think about faith as like, it's just something that's either in you or it's not. Well, no. When the Bible—the Bible commands belief, the Bible commands love, and so you act upon those commands, and then you have faith and you have love. Okay? And if you don't act upon those commands, you didn't have faith and you didn't have love. Right? And so— all of that to say, it's not primarily an emotion. Love is a right and necessary response to God's love for us, and it is tangible. Something comes from love, some action. And so we are think, to think biblically about truth and love. Number two, we are to obey the truth and love. Obey the truth and love. I'm talking about action here. Christian people can be so unkind, can be so unloving, and the world looks at us and goes, what's the deal? Didn't, wasn't Jesus loving? And we say, yeah, but you're a heathen. I mean, yeah, okay, they don't believe the right thing. That's give an excuse to, to, to be unkind and sour. And, and, and so it's important that we act like we believe the gospel. We act that, like, like we believe that Jesus loves sinners, that he died for sinners. We act like we believe what the Bible says, that though those people are sinful, and though you might have been wronged, God is a, a forgiving and gracious and merciful God. And he's called us to the same thing. Um, we need to love people in need. 
And that, there's a lot of people in need, and so you don't have to look very far. There's the poor, there's the broken, there's the sick, there's the sinful, there's the weak and the weary, there's the unlovely, and there's all those people in our church. You don't have to look far to love people. We need to provide for their needs, to sacrifice our time and our effort and our possessions and our wealth and, and whatever it is that God has given us, whatever we have in our hands, be willing to sacrifice those things for other people because we're demonstrating love. It's just a point on that, with the idea of love too. And sometimes we think as Christians too, and it's right, we, we need to do it to, to all men, right? Mm-hmm. But when Jesus says about, by this one thing, men will know that you're my disciples, the love that you have for one another. Mm-hmm. So those people are here, mm-hmm. and it starts here. And when yeah. people see the way the church responds in love, to those in our church are unlovely. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's powerful for our community, and it should go out from there, but I think sometimes we have this big idea that I'm going to go out to the far-flung corners of the world and be loving to people who need love, and they certainly do, yep. but it should start here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, most of the time that the New Testament is talking about love and commanding love, it's speaking about love in the context of a church. Uh, I called the, the book Walking in Truth and Love, but I had two titles up before that, and it was The Indivisibility of Truth and Love and The Union of Truth and Love. And I think that's, that's exactly it, that you can't get rid of one and still have the other because without the two together, you don't have either. We no, must obey the truth and love. We're getting way beyond time. Um, I'll just give you the, the quick highlights of the points. The, the last point is speak the truth and love, and this requires a great deal of wisdom and discernment. Okay? It's not an easy thing to do. So how do you figure out how to speak the truth in love? Well, sometimes you have to be a hammer. And truth is a hammer. And sometimes truth is more like a little pillow. But we see Jesus exercising this discretion, this, this discernment in his ministry. We see him with the woman at the well. Speaking truth in love, but doing it in a, a, a soft way. And we see him with the Pharisee. When he's beating him over the head. You're a f- hypocrite. You're a viper. You're a a t- dead man's tomb full of dead man's bones. I mean, he's harsh on the people that he should be harsh on. Why? I mean, because people that are proud or self-righteous or arrogant, they need somebody to be harsh with them. When you're living in blatant sin and you're not concerned about it, sometimes you need a knock over the head. And, and when you're somebody who's broken and you're hurting or you're searching, then you need somebody who'll, who will guide you in, in a, still, still in a firm way, but in a soft way to the truth. And, and, The point is that all of that is speaking truth in love. All of what Jesus did when he was speaking to the Pharisee, and you look at that and you go, how is that loving? It was loving, because that's what they needed to hear. And when he was speaking to the the woman caught in adultery, and he said, go and sin no more. He didn't say what she was doing was okay, but he loved her, and he said, go and sin no more, because that's what she needed to hear. It was truth. We think about Jesus. He's our example. Truth is essential. Um, so we should act in a way that current situation demands to effectively communicate truth in a loving way. Oh, I gotta say, I'm amazed that we look at this book, how relevant it is for us. And, and as much as it's just a little letter, we could spend a lot of time in our lives working on this relationship with truth and love. Um, there's a song that's, it's not out yet, it's actually coming out in a week or so, by Casting Crowns, and it's, the line is, when we love we earn the right to speak truth. When we speak truth, we show the world we truly love. That was a good line. And so we'll end on that note.